and welcome back to Unjustly. I'm Sandy and this is my co-host Stephanie. Hello. Thank you for joining us as we continue to explore the social injustices in our criminal justice system. Okay, so Steph, I saw that your sister just posted that she is going to law school. She is a sneaky little girl. She (laughs) knew this since about, I think, like March or April. We were already in quarantine. She got accepted into UC Davis Law, so she is virtually attending right now because of quarantine. Um, But now that it's official because she posted it, I think I'm allowed to speak about it and I won't be too like corny because she's going to get mad. (laughs) But obviously everyone is super, super proud of her. Um, Brianna. Yes. Um, You know, she posted her little Instagram post, but it's very informative. So she says, did you know that the legal profession remains one of the least diverse in America? Less than 4% of active attorneys identified as Hispanic or Latino. And of that group, only 2% identified as women. Wow. So she says that the statistics are just a reminder that law school wasn't created with many of us in mind. Mm -hmm. Um, And so... That's why she is kind of forcing her way into that kind of world. And she's super smart and very stubborn. So she's going to make a great lawyer. Yes, she is. But hopefully once she's, um, you know, been in school a little bit longer and she learns about all these like really interesting cases Mm -hmm. or law tidbits, we can have her on. Hopefully we definitely got to get her on and have her school us a little bit. That's amazing. And you said she might be interested in immigration law. I believe, but she's very weird about it. So like, just like she knew since March, she was going to law school and didn't say anything. She also doesn't like discussing it very much. (laughs) I think she like thinks it's going to jinx her. So she tries to just keep it all inside. But in like the few conversations that she has like talked about it, I'm pretty sure it's immigration law that she wants to um, pursue just because we are immigrants. Well, not she and I, but our family is mm-hmm. uh, are immigrants, and I think she just wants to be able to help those that she kind of identifies the yeah. most with. That's amazing. Yeah. Sending her all the good vibes and support. Good vibes only. Only. Okay. Good for you. <laughs> all right. So if you have not listened to my last episode, which was episode three on rape culture, I highly recommend listening to it either before this episode or directly after, um, because it will give a lot of insight into the reasons and psychology behind what we'll be discussing today. That was kind of my prelude to this episode. Um, So I'll be covering the backlog of the untested rape kits in the U.S., And if you were frustrated at all during my rape culture episode, then you will be extremely frustrated with this one. And (laughs) just like last time, I want to give a trigger warning as we will be talking about sexual assault. The trigger has been warned. The trigger has been warned? Yeah. You've been warned. No, that's Does that make sense? No. (laughs) I'm just saying something stupid. Warned of the trigger. The trigger has been warned and so have you. (laughs) (laughs) So I got my sources from an article in The Atlantic, An Epidemic of Disbelief by Barbara Bradley Haggerty, um, the website and the backlog.org, an article by Steve Riley from USA Today, an article from Andrew Keats in voiceofsandiego.org. I will be giving some San Diego information. Mm-hmm. Um, I got information from the Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network and also... It's rain. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Um, but if you say rain, I didn't want to be like, it's rain with two N's. And so, yeah, that's no, what it, it just stands like for. The, every, the words reminded me of something. I was like, what is it? Mm-hmm. Um, and then I also have some information from the documentary called I Am Evidence. Have you seen that one? I don't know. Have it's a, I? It's a really good one. You should Where watch it. it. Um, I saw it on HBO. I streamed it on that. Um, I think you can rent it on Amazon Prime if you don't have HBO. Um, but it's definitely worth a watch okay. if you want to be Once frustrated you start talking about it it might ring a bell because i feel like i've watched all the hbo ones oh all the documentaries yeah, on hbo I love the oh HBO documentaries i so do i let's do an episode on hbo documentaries <laughs> no, i'm kidding <laughs> okay so with the crime of sexual assault the victim's body ends up being a part of the crime scene when the victim reports the assault the victim can choose to have a doctor or nurse conduct an invasive and exhaustive examination of the victim's entire body for dna evidence left behind by the attacker a process that takes four to six hours to complete that evidence is collected and preserved in the sexual assault evidence kit commonly referred to as a rape kit mm -hmm. When tested, DNA evidence contained by rape kits can be an incredibly powerful tool to solve and prevent crime. It can identify an unknown assailant and confirm the presence of a known suspect. It can affirm the survivor's account of the attack and discredit the suspect. It can connect the suspect to other crime scenes and identify serial offenders, and it can exonerate the wrongfully convicted. To accomplish these things, however, rape kits must be tested. Mm -hmm. So in 2009, Robert Spada, an assistant prosecutor, wanted to visit the Detroit Evidence Building to understand why it seemed like police were sometimes unable to find crucial evidence. So a Detroit police officer took Spada on a tour around the evidence warehouse. According to Spada, the building holding the evidence was unorganized. It was hot and musty. There were many broken windows and birds flying around inside. Mm-hmm. Now, in the documentary, it shows the building that it was in, and I think at the time of the filming, it was already abandoned and not being used anymore because half of the building was, like, collapsed, like they were trying to, like, collapse the building, um, but the part that was still up looked like it was not, like, no one should be in it. Like, it didn't even look safe. Like, all the windows were broken. Mm -hmm. Um like a sterile environment where evidence should be kept. I feel like exactly. I, I hear this in so many cases, not just like rape victim cases, but mm -hmm. just in a lot of cases in general, it doesn't seem, which I understand it's really difficult because, I mean, imagine how many cases come through a police station right. and how much evidence is collected. But there just seems like there should be a better way mm -hmm. and a better system to collect all of this because a lot of times some of it is in like the actual police station. Yes. And then the rest, like the majority of it, which ends up being like older cases, cold mm -hmm. cases or whatever, ends up in a separate Warehouse. location that no one's really doing any kind of upkeep. Clearly, people could be breaking into it. Windows yeah, are broken. And taking like, evidence. It just doesn't make sense that that's where you're preserving evidence that could be so, so important later on. Right. And I don't know if, if I just have this idea in my head because of TV, but I imagine an evidence room that's like super AC mm -hmm. and it's being guarded and, you know, there's like an organized filing system and like a computer system attached to it, like all these things. But then, and I don't know if this is that common or if it's just in Detroit, which I highly doubt, but the warehouse that's holding the evidence just looked like it was abandoned. And it, 
I can't imagine if something happened to me and evidence had to be taken for my case that it was stored there. That would infuriate me. Um, so during Spada's tour, he noticed that there were rows of shelves stuffed with boxes, which he was told were rape kits. Although the police officer assured him that all the rape kits were tested, Spada started opening up the boxes and every single kit was still sealed, mm-hmm. which meant that none of them had been tested. After an investigation was launched, it was discovered that the Detroit Evidence Warehouse had 11,341 untested rape kits, some of which were over 30 years old that were just sitting on the shelves. It gets worse. And it's not uncommon. No. It's not uncommon that like police stations have this many rape we're kits get that have yeah. all over the U.S. So let me just give a quick lesson on what a rape kit actually entails. Uh, So during a four to six hour investigation, a survivor is questioned about her history, and then they're often placed in stirrups on a medical table to be swabbed in the vagina, anus, mouth, and other surfaces. Blood, urine, and pubic hair samples are taken. Mm -hmm. Photographs are taken of the survivor's genitals and other Mm -hmm. injuries, and their clothes are often taken as evidence as well. So this means that 11,341 people, mostly women, in Detroit alone were sexually assaulted and then had to go through the very invasive process of a rape kit examination to bring their assailant to justice and then nothing happened. Mm -hmm. So basically like it happened to them twice. Exactly. It was stored away in a broken down building for years to come and just forgotten about. Or even worse, just ignored because the police department did not find it important enough. Which brings me back to my last episode on rape culture and how much of an impact that actually has in the criminal justice system. Due to bias and myths regarding rape in law enforcement, we now have over 11,000 victims and counting that aren't deemed important enough to get justice. So after Spada discovered the thousands of untested rape kits, he contacted Kim Worthy, the county prosecutor, who stated that she was livid to hear this news. Although the untested rape kits continued to accumulate in Detroit for a few years after this, the incident did start a push for advocacy and pressure to get these rape kits tested. According to Barbara Bradley Haggerty from The Atlantic, Since the discovery, Detroit and other jurisdictions across the country have shipped tens of thousands of kits to labs for testing. The results have upended assumptions that sexual predators, showing, for example, that serial rapists are far more common than many experts had previously believed. You look at me perplexed. Mm -mm. Okay. Sorry. (laughs) Eric Eugene Wilkes was known to Detroit police for robbery and carjacking but not for rape. Yet Wilkes' DNA was in boxes scattered throughout the warehouse, even as he walked free. His DNA um, first arrived there more than 18 years ago after he raped a woman waiting for a bus on December 26, 2000. It next appeared after another rape four months later. Three days after that, police shelved the untested kit from his third victim. Wilkes had violently raped 10 women, that we know of, and police had his DNA in 10 separate evidence boxes over a span of 11 years. It wasn't until his 11th victim that he was caught, and it was only because she had seen Wilkes walking around after the assault and she called the police. Hmm. 
Haggerty brings up a great question in the article, which is, how many rapes could have been prevented if police had believed the first victim? How many women would have been spared a brutal assault? So this question completely broke me because all I could think about was, what if I had been one of the subsequent victims of someone like Wilkes? Or what if it was one of my daughters or someone that I loved? And then come to find out that had they have just tested the first kit, none of this would have happened to more women. Mm-hmm. The fact that it was completely preventable and that they were just holding on to his DNA for over a decade is so upsetting and even adds salt to the wound. But the rape kit scandal has turned out to be an only a visible symptom. The deeper problem is a criminal justice system in which police officers continue to disbelieve women who say they've been raped, even after the Me Too movement, and even when DNA testing can confirm many allegations. In the documentary I mentioned earlier, they showed portions of the actual police reports, um, which not only showed law enforcement writing down that they didn't believe the victim, but they were also calling the victims bitches and hoes in the fucking report. Wow. Um, One even said, this heifer is tripping. (gasps) Oh my God. I know. He pulled out the heifer word? He pulled out the heifer word and wrote it down on the report for the report to be stored away as for that case. So from the moment a woman calls 911, and it's almost always a woman since male victims rarely report sexual assaults anyway, a rape allegation becomes, at every stage, more likely to slide into an investigative crevice. Police may try to discourage the victim from filing a report. If she insists on pursuing a case, it may not be assigned to a detective. If her case is assigned to a detective, it will likely close with little investigation and no arrest. If an arrest is made, the prosecutor may decline to bring charges. No trial, no conviction, no punishment. And as we know from before, less than 1% of rapists actually go to jail. So in about 49 out of every 50 rape cases, the alleged assailant goes free. Often we know to assault again, which means that rape more than murder, more than robbery or assault is by far the easiest violent crime to get away with. After the Detroit rape test scandal, in Ohio, the Cuyahoga County Prosecutor's Office hired a team of researchers at Case Western Reserve University in 2015 to pour through police files and other records connected to thousands of untested rape kits in Cleveland. They quickly spotted the same pattern. In a random sample of cases, they found that the notes from many police investigations barely filled a single page. In 40% of cases, detectives never even contacted the victim. Half of the investigations were closed in a week. A quarter of them were closed in just a day. As for rape kits, the one type of evidence that might definitively identify a rapist, police rarely sent them to a lab for testing. Granted, testing a kit could cost more than $5,000 in the late 90s and 2000s, but during part of that time, the state was paying police departments to send in evidence. And even when the cost of testing a kit dropped to less than $1,000, police still tucked away the evidence in storage. Ultimately, Cleveland would accumulate around 7,000 untested kits. So I don't have an answer to this question. Okay. But like hearing all of this makes me question... Like, why? Why is there such little importance giving, given to these particular kinds of cases? Mm-hmm. Like, why is it that 
you know, I understand, oh, like maybe it's too much money. We can't get it. We can't get this rape to get tested or, you know, there wasn't, there's not as much, we don't have as much to go on to actually go out and like look for this person. So it might be harder to pursue, but that doesn't explain why police officers are writing their reports a certain way why you know in situations where they do have enough information to pursue why they're Mm -hmm. not why they're not doing it so again like I don't have the the answer to all of this and I'm sure it's a multitude of things combined that like has created this um like uh, it's the rape culture this culture it's the same it's the myths surrounding rape that continue to cycle into criminal justice and the minds of law enforcement and, and the community in general people. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, it, it really has affected how we view rape victims. And I don't understand how that even started. Um, but it seems almost impossible to stop. Yeah. Or like, why, <laughs> like why, but no, but seriously, like why, I understand like if before, you know, like back in the days, you know, women were just seen as property and Mm -hmm. rape was this and rape was that and what it wasn't and all of these things. But I feel like today we live in a world and age where like those things have kind of shifted. And so like we don't necessarily see women entirely in that way. But like the bigger issue I guess I have is like most of the police officers or like the men police officers, the male police officers, like they all know women. They they mm-hmm. have a wife, they have a mother, sisters, daughters. Like I just don't understand how they can be so un like empathetic and mm-hmm. unsympathetic that when these women come in telling them like this really awful thing that happened to them, that they can just sit there and be like, this bitch, this hoe, this heifer, mm-hmm. like what like where is that like you're so disconnected and so desensitized from like the people that you're supposed to be serving that like you can go so far as like writing those things down and just like how can you hear someone's story and just feel nothing yeah i don't get it i'm sorry that's it okay So even though police departments in Cleveland were able to identify some serial rapists through these rape kits, it did not push them to investigate sexual assaults more thoroughly until one day they discovered that a serial rapist had turned into a serial killer. Can you guess who this was? Cleveland serial killer. Wait, is it? No, it wasn't BTK. Flip might know. Who? It's not Bundy? No. No. (laughs) It's not BTK, is it? No. Tell me. All right. Anthony Sowell, the Cleveland Strangler. You Does it ring a bell to you? The Girlfriend. Scranton Strangler? The w- no, not oh, the Scranton Strangler. Kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. Shout out to all the Office fans. I only know of the Scranton Strangler. <laughs> all right. So in October 2009, the police discovered the bodies of 11 women buried in the home and backyard of Anthony Sowell, a convicted rapist. Over the years, some of Sowell's intended victims had escaped and reported his attempts to rape them, but the police had never thoroughly investigated their claims. At least one woman had completed a forensic exam. The police had tested their, the rape kit, but only tested for drugs in her system, not for the rapist's DNA. 
The Sowell case became a scandal and it raised larger questions. Why weren't attacks on women being investigated? Under pressure from then-Ohio Attorney General Mike DeWine, the city's police department began sending off kits for testing in 2011. Officials called it a forklift approach because every box, no matter how old, was shipped to a state lab. And in January 2013, Tim McGinty, who had just been elected um, Cuyahoga County prosecutor, created a task force devoted to testing the kits and reinvestigating cases. He brought in 25 detectives, mostly out of retirement, and assigned half a dozen assistant prosecutors to the effort. Within weeks, DNA results started arriving from the lab. More than a third of the rape kits were peeing in the FBI's combined DNA index system, known as CODIS. Created in the 1990s, the database contains DNA profiles collected at crime scenes across the country, and many of them linked to the name of a known criminal. Cleveland investigators were soon identifying rapists who had eluded detection for decades. Investigators sometimes had only a few days to build a 20-year-old case to locate victims and witnesses and gather their sworn statements before the statute of limitations ran out. There was one hit where they were able to turn it around in two days and brought it to the grand jury at 4.15 p.m. before the 4.30 end of day. Cases with fewer than 10 days remaining until the statutory limit was up were labeled in red ink, all hands on deck. Since Cuyahoga County began forklifting its kits, prosecutors have indicted nearly 750 rapists in cold cases and convicted more than 400 of them. Detroit, which got a later start, has convicted about 175 men and counting. The Cuyahoga County Rape Kit Task Force subsequently ended up revolutionizing the sexual assault field in criminology. The statistics received from all of those rape kits uncovered new clues about the behavior of sexual assailants and overturned some basic assumptions about how often they offend, whom they attack, and how they might be captured. So essentially, they had this sample of dozens of rapists and were able to track their steps and their MOs over the span of decades in some cases, and it helped piece together behavior trends and use statistical information for them to evaluate that they hadn't been able to organize before. So here are some discoveries that came from this mass testing of forgotten rape kits. About one in five DNA matches pointed to a serial rapist. With this new information, it would seem that police should take every sexual assault case that comes in serious because there's a 20% chance that their rapist has done it before and will do it again. They also discovered that trying to profile a serial rapist wasn't completely useful, as most had a wide range of victims pertaining to age and ethnicity. Although some serial rapists might have certain fantasies of what they are looking for, at the end of the day, it comes down to what opportunity they were able to take. Mm -hmm. Another issue was the dismissal of rape kits from acquaintance rape. 80% of the time, the rapist is someone a woman knows. They met at a party or a bar. He's her colleague, friend, mentor, or coach. So police saw little reason to send off those rape kits. The man's identity was never in doubt. But the Cleveland study illuminated another insight, one that shows the tragic consequences of failing to test acquaintance rape kits. Historically, investigators had assumed that someone who assaults a stranger by the railroad tracks is nothing like the man who assaults his coworker or his girlfriend. But it turns out that acquaintance rapists and stranger rapists are almost one in the same. 
When Cleveland investigators uploaded the DNA from the acquaintance rape kits, they were surprised by how often the results also matched DNA from unsolved stranger rapes. The task force identified dozens of mystery rapists this way. Isn't that terrifying, though? Yeah. Because, okay, let's just assume, like, someone's out drinking, whatever. Mm-hmm. See someone, meet someone, or whatever. They end up getting raped that night. And they're mm-hmm. like, oh, like, maybe I was just really drunk. Or, like, I don't remember. So, like, is it rape? Is it not rape? Whatever. Right. And then you come to find out that, like, even though you gave that person the benefit of the doubt... Like, they've been raping other people because at the end of the Mm -hmm. day, like you said, I think, like, the main thing is not just what their, like, fantasy or desire is. At the end of the day, it's what opportunities arise. Another example of why it's good to test the rape kits comes from the story of Natasha Alexenko. She was raped in the stairwell of her New York City apartment building in 1993. The investigation turned up no suspects and CODIS did not exist yet. Ten years later, the database was up and running, though sparsely populated. When police plugged in the rapist's DNA, they found no match. When the statute of limitations was about to expire, prosecutors were able to indict a John Doe, whose DNA was found in Alexenko's rape kit. They then waited, hoping he would commit another crime. In 2007, Victor Rondon was stopped for jaywalking in Las Vegas, and he punched the police officer. The DNA from Rondon's swab matched that of Alexenko's rape kit. Rondon was convicted of rape, sodomy, sexual abuse, burglary, and robbery. So I don't remember if this is the exact case that I'm thinking of because mm-hmm. there's just so much up there. Mm-hmm. But I remember that there is a similar case where there was like a rape victim and they had the person's DNA and they knew that it was just a matter of time before that person ended up in CODIS mm-hmm. or in one of the systems. And so they did that where they, because after the statute of limitations, you can't charge the person right. with rape, but they were so sure that it was like literally just like a matter of time that mm-hmm. they... They like assigned a name to it because if you don't I know who know it is, I didn't know you can indict a John Doe. Exactly. Like if you don't have like a name or whatever, like then you can't do certain things. And so like they went and did this. And mm-hmm. in that moment, I was like, why isn't everybody doing this? Yeah. Like, yeah. How many cases could you not charge like later on? Because so many are so old before, like you said, before there was this system, before there was DNA testing. Mm-hmm. And as we know, like, rapists will continue to do it until they're caught, probably, right? And so, like, it really is just a matter of time before Mm -hmm. they slip up and do it again. Like, in this case, like, thank God this guy was an idiot and punched the cop, and that's why he ended up. But, like, chances are sooner or later he probably would have. They'll mess up again. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. So it's like, when I read that, I was just like, God, why isn't everyone doing this? I'm sure that there's a lot of, like legal stuff that goes on or whatever but yeah like when i read that i was like this is incredibly smart so the federal government estimates that police departments have warehoused more than two hundred thousand untested sexual assault kits but no one really knows because cities and states fight to keep those numbers secret the joyful heart foundation and advocacy group started by marishka hargitay 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 We've been testing this out for a while, making sure we say it correctly. (laughs) Who stars in Law & Order Special Victims Unit has identified more than 225,000 kits through public records requests. 
But given that 15 states and many large cities have declined to even count the untested rape kits in their possession, the group believes there may be several hundred thousand more. Ready to get a little more upset? Mm -hmm. Okay. At some agencies, records reviewed by USA Today show that untested sexual assault kits are also coming from cases involving child victims. As an example, records from the Dallas Police Department show at least 43 sexual assault kits taken into custody from 1996 to 1999 were from children, some as young as 12. Mm. In an interview, Dallas police officials said there are likely more, um, many more kits from children among its inventory of more than 4,000, but there are no plans to specifically target them for testing. Another recent issue occurred in Los Angeles County. The former district attorney, Steve Cooley, admitted that law enforcement in the department had been misinterpreting, and I want to I say that with air quotes because I don't think I believe their excuse, um, but he believes that they were misinterpreting what the statute of limitations was for rape crimes, oh and they God. had been destroying untested <gasps> rape kits that could have still been used to convict rapists. Mm-hmm. I mean... Are we surprised? (laughs) Like, the LAPD has such a tainted history Mm -hmm. that, like, this, I mean, this is freaking awful, but I'm not that surprised. Yeah. So, in 2015, the Obama administration launched the Sexual Assault Kit Initiative. Saki, what was that that you just did, Steph? Was that, like, a a little tribute? Oh. (laughs) Um, So, Saki to encourage cities and states to send untested kits to labs, open new investigations, and prosecute the assailants who had slipped under the radar for years or even decades. As of February 2019, the Justice Department had awarded $154 million to 54 jurisdictions. The Justice Department reported that some 61,000 rape kits have been inventoried and nearly 45,000 tested. Police have opened or reopened 5,500 investigations and prosecutors have won 498 convictions or plea agreements. The majority of these convictions have been from Detroit and Cleveland. Don't get too excited yet because Mm -hmm. (laughs) um, although the initiative sounded like a wonderful solution, it had its flaws. While some police departments were receiving millions of dollars from Saki, they were not yielding any charges or convictions. It was apparent that they were sending the rape kits for testing to receive the money and then not pursuing an investigation with the results. Mm -hmm. In fact, officials from some jurisdictions admitted that they did not intend to prosecute anyone from the rape kit results. As an example, the city of Los Angeles tested almost 11,000 kits. They had a positive identification on 1,600 of them, but they only convicted six. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And we see this all across the country with many cities yielding zero convictions, even though they had positive results. Well, and even though they were getting money to do it. Yeah. It's literally doing like less than the bare minimum. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. You're, you're doing it because it benefits you, but you're not actually doing anything with the information that you're receiving. Mm-hmm. So like you're literally just, you're just doing, just, no. <laughs> I know. Yeah. It's a frustrating topic. Um, So the skepticism that law enforcement have of women who report being raped is a problem with no easy fix, which is what we mentioned earlier. Um, 
which is what Dan Clark says, the Cleveland detective um, who conducts training programs across the country for Saki. Clark tries to teach investigators to take a woman's allegation of rape as seriously as they would a report of assault or robbery. But in private conversations afterward, he says it becomes clear the message didn't sink in. Officers continue to tell him they think that many women lie about being raped and that their claims aren't worth investigating. Clark says that this is that sort of intractable belief that we could not seem to shake. So Detroit and Los Angeles allowed researchers to read thousands of pages of police reports and interview detectives and prosecutors to see what exactly was going on behind the issues of rape reports. What the researchers found was a river of chauvinism, where the fate of a rape case usually depends on the detective's or prosecutor's view of the victim, not the alleged perpetrator. The researchers said they heard over and over detectives use the term righteous victim, which is a woman who didn't know her assailant, who fought back, who has a clean record and hadn't been drinking or offering sex for money or drugs. That's the only type of woman that would be taken serious. During the interviews, law enforcement made comments like, if I had a righteous victim, I would do all that I could to make sure that the suspect was arrested. But most of my victims don't look like that. In cases of acquaintance rape, detectives expressed doubt and blamed the woman. And I guess the sad thing of that is that I don't, I don't know. I obviously don't have the statistics and I don't have the numbers, but I think it's pretty well known that when selecting a rape victim they're not going for someone who looks like they have people at home waiting for them Mm -hmm. who looks you know who looks like they're quote-unquote put together or like whatever the case is like yes of course like those kinds of women are also raped but I think for the most part when a rapist is trying to find someone they're looking for someone who might be a drug addict or the a most sex worker vulnerable in the, the community most vulnerable who they know don't have family members who are waiting up at home for them mm-hmm. who know they probably don't aren't going to be reporting to work the next day so like a righteous victim isn't the like the most like the majority the ideal victim for, for a, rapist a rapist who's searching so mm-hmm. it's like they're only they're only going to be pursuing like what they think is the ideal victim but the reality is that most women getting who are being raped are are not those women mm-hmm. so the, most of them are just falling through the cracks mm-hmm. yeah um law enforcement also spoke skeptically of party rapes in which women drink too much and quote make bad choices one described buyer's remorse where a woman who has been out partying has sex with a man willingly and later regrets it one detective states that out of 10 cases, eight are false reports, which we know is not true at all. <laughs> uh, detectives also often said that women got what they got if they knew the man. The interviewer asked one detective whether a man can rape an acquaintance. He said, truly rape sometimes, but not most of the time. Steph just rolled her <laughs> eyes for those of you that can't see her. <laughs> Uh, To police officers who haven't been trained to spot signs of trauma, most rape victims appear to be lying to them. And also, I'm sorry, but what is (laughs) what is truly rape? Like, I don't know. You could kind of kind of rape. Like, who are you to decide what rape is? Like, Mm -hmm. you're not a rape victim. You you haven't been 
violated in such a way that you know mm-hmm. so who like who are you to say if it was true or not only the victim could say whether or not it was true yeah like fuck off <laughs> um so one detroit detective told the interviewer that a victim should be a complete hot mess they should be crying they should be very very traumatized but research finds that many victims don't respond in a predictable fashion again if you haven't listened to episode three we go over the psychology behind why and how survivors react to trauma If detectives blame or disbelieve a woman, their next step is to close the case by persuading her to withdraw the complaint. In Detroit, detectives sometimes opened um, interviews by noting that the victim would be charged for false reporting if she said anything that was untrue Mm -hmm. or couldn't be corroborated. Worried about being prosecuted, the woman would sometimes withdraw the allegation. I feel like I read that that happens a lot on campus rapes, too. I can see that. Like they're, like they're told, yeah, like mm-hmm. on, on college campuses, like if, if you're lying or we find that you like your statement isn't a hundred percent true, like you can be like expelled or mm. whatever, where it's like you somehow suddenly like you're not just, you're not a victim. You're in trouble for right. bringing it up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that's like what we saw. I keep mentioning episode three, but honestly, this is like part two of that episode. And we went over that case of Marie mm-hmm. who her her foster mom called in and said you know when she told me the story it sounded like she was unemotional and then they ended up charging her for false reporting Mm -hmm. but even when the victim does everything right even when the police build a strong case against the suspect even then a prosecutor might decline to bring the case to trial Prosecutors, particularly elected ones, are measured by their wins and losses and may be unwilling to spoil their record with problematic or difficult cases. Mm -hmm. They've got to have the perfect victim, the perfect type of crime, the perfect witness, and anybody who deviates from that is not going to have their day in court. Sometimes even a confession is not enough. Haggerty used an example in her article in The Atlantic about a woman who had been giving a tour of her family's organic farm. Later that night, while her husband was traveling, a man that was on the tour had snuck into her bedroom and assaulted her. At first, she thought the man was her husband, and she waited a few seconds before kicking him off the bed. Afterwards, she called the police, and two weeks later, as officers listened in and recorded a phone conversation between the two, the man apologized for assaulting her. The officers were elated, but the prosecutor declined to bring charges, stating that no jury would believe she mistook the intruder for her husband. So when law enforcement and prosecutors don't take the survivor seriously, she's basically left never receiving any justice. She can't force the police to investigate and she can't make prosecutors try her case. Some women in San Francisco, Houston, and Memphis have tried to sue in federal court. They claim that the state violated their due process rights by failing to test their rape kits and fully investigate their claims, and that government policies discriminated against women by giving rape cases a lower priority than violent crimes more commonly committed against men, such as an aggravated assault and robbery. Those lawsuits have been dismissed or withdrawn. A class action suit in Austin, Texas may have a better chance of showing gender discrimination based on one striking fact. Of the more than 200 sexual assault cases, police referred to prosecutors from July 2016 to June 2017 
Eight resulted in plea agreements, but only one case went to trial. The victim in that case was a man. Mm. The success of the Cleveland Task Force proves that rape cases are winnable. Serial rapists could be swept from the streets and many women could escape the worst moments of their life if police and prosecutors would get rid of their bias. It is estimated that there are still thousands of rape kits sitting untested in police departments and crime lab storage facilities across the country. Each kit represents a lost opportunity to bring healing and justice to a survivor of sexual violence and safety to a community. So since discovering this backlog issue, what is being done to fix the issue? According to endthebacklog.org, ending the rape kit backlog requires a coordinated effort at the federal, state, and local levels. A growing number of states are taking steps to end the untested rape kit backlog and ensure it never happens again by enacting Joyful Hearts' six pillars of rape kit reform. Joyful Hearts is the advocacy program I mentioned earlier, uh, so let's see what the six pillars are. The first pillar in the reform is inventories. The majority of U.S. states have taken the first step toward addressing their backlogs by requiring law enforcement agencies to conduct an inventory of untested rape kits in their custody. Second is mandatory testing of backlogged kits. More than half of the states in the U.S. have committed to testing their backlogged kits. As of April 2020, Colorado, Connecticut, Florida, Kentucky, Oregon, and Washington, D.C. have cleared their backlog. Shout out to you guys. <laughs> Third is mandatory testing for newly collected kits. To ensure the backlog never happens again, states such as Connecticut, Kentucky, and Michigan have enacted laws that require law enforcement to submit rape kits to labs for testing within certain timeframes. Fourth is a rape kit tracking system. The first rape kit tracking law was implemented in Michigan in 2014. In 2016, both Washington State and Idaho adopted tracking laws. Since then, more than 20 states have either implemented or are in the process of implementing sexual assault kit tracking systems. Fifth is a survivor's right to notice. Almost half of U.S. states have passed victim rights to notice laws. Massachusetts, Hawaii, and New York are among the most comprehensive statutes. And finally, state funding. Some states have included funding for rape kit testing in their budgets, which is a critical investment in reform. For example, Alaska appropriated $2.75 million to test every rape kit in the state. In California, the state legislator included $6.5 million in their budget for rape kit testing. A quote from Marishka that we talked about earlier states, To me, the backlog is one of the clearest and most shocking demonstrations of how we regard these crimes in our society. Testing rape kits sends a fundamental and crucial message to victims of sexual violence. You matter, what happened to you matters, and your case matters. And it's not just the survivors um, that could get justice from these rape kits. The DNA in these kits have also um, had the power to potentially exonerate innocent men in prison. Mm -hmm. As an example, when Dallas, Texas started testing their backlog rape kits, they discovered that Michael Phillips, a man who spent 12 years in prison for raping a 16-year-old girl and then had to register as a sex offender, had actually been innocent the entire time. Phillips waited 24 years after his conviction to finally be exonerated. 
And then we have Rafael Ruiz in New York, who spent 25 years in prison and then registered as a sex offender after his release for 11 more years before a previously untested rape kit proved his innocence earlier this year. So in that story that I did, the San Antonio Four, mm-hmm. um, one of the girls that was, she was out first, um, she talks about how being registered, how, like how difficult it is to yeah. be a registered sex offender, like to get, I think she was talking about like how she was trying to get to work or she was trying to get to a grocery store or something, but she was given like a, a like a map mm-hmm. by, I don't know, the state or the police department Mm -hmm. whoever she was giving like directions on how she can get there and she she could only go that way yeah because if she went like the fastest way or whatever she would be going through like a school or like there was kids Mm -hmm. or whatever so she parks she could only go a certain way and so she's like i mean like it doubled my time in getting to wherever it was that she was going but it's just like obviously we want those things in place because there are so many people who are actually doing these things who should stay away from yeah, kids but and it all sucks that. for those that but are it innocent. does that yeah for those who had nothing to do because it time. can prevent you from getting jobs yeah. mm-hmm. um it affects your entire life which good for people that are guilty of it, <laughs> but for the innocent people mm-hmm. i mean not only did you take time away from your from their life in prison but now you're affecting the rest of their life i was always kind of like on the fence when it came to the death penalty because, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. because it costs so much money to have people on death row mm-hmm. and so all of these like different arguments or whatever. But in like learning and researching about wrongful convictions, I feel like I'm leaning more towards not like having a death penalty because there are so many people who have been and are on death row that probably don't belong there. And that it's just a matter of time before something like DNA could gets tested, exonerate them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's 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 hard because, yes, of course, like the crimes that these people are committing are awful. But like, what about the innocent know. people? Yeah. There have it, definitely been innocent people that were put to death, and then after, after death, they yeah. were exonerated. I know. Yeah. I mean, like life in prison is still really, really awful without the possibility of parole. So, like that to me, like outweighs like the fact that there are probably people on death row right now who are waiting to be mm-hmm. yeah killed um and just knowing that we might do it incorrectly just i don't know yeah They're, the life of those people for me outweighs just having something like the death penalty around for the others, for, for the others. Yeah. yeah when we know that life in prison is probably more miserable Right. Because you're just waiting. You're literally just waiting. I don't know. This is whole, whole yeah. thing. But yeah. I don't know how I feel about that either. Researching about all of this definitely makes makes it harder because you do it gives realize a different view yeah. of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So over the past decade, Congress has appropriated about $1.2 billion to cut the nation's backlog of DNA testing needs, including sexual assault kits. In other terms, enough to test 1 million rape kits. In 2013, Congress passed legislation to focus federal spending and set national testing standards. The Sexual Assault Forensic Evidence Registry Act, or SAFER Act for short, required at least three quarters of the funding for sexual assault kits be used for testing or taking inventory of the evidence. 
The law set up grants to help local police pay for inventories and testing. No grants have been awarded. A Justice Department committee met only once in March 2014. Senator John Cornyn from Texas, who authored the law, called it completely unconscionable that the Justice Department has not even complied. So I also wanted to throw in a little bit of information for my San Diego friends, since me and Steph are from San Diego. Shout out. Ooh. In an article from May 2020, it was discovered that San Diego currently has the most untested rape kits in California. SDPD, uh -oh. yeah, big uh-oh. SDPD also doesn't know when those kits were even collected. It also suggests the city could have a tough time complying with a state bill that went into effect this year, requiring that every rape kit collected since the start of 2016 goes through formal screening for DNA evidence. San Diego stood by its decision not to automatically test all kits. SDPD argued it made more sense to determine whether kits had investigative value before screening them. Yeah. Thanks, SDPD. Mm -hmm. I'm not very proud of our city right now when it comes to this. That's awful. Mm -hmm. So after hearing all of this, how can we make things better? For one, we need to start correlating that every single one of those rape kits represents a real person. It represents their family and friends and everyone who is touched by that case. There needs to be consistency in decisions to test and store evidence. More training on how police treat and understand survivors who come in to report needs to happen. Um, Illinois Attorney General Madigan told a U.S. Senate subcommittee at a hearing that Quote, the fact is that often rape kits are unsubmitted for testing because of a blame the victim mentality or because investigators mistrust the survivor's story. This outdated way of thinking must be changed. There also needs to be a thorough understanding that this evidence can identify unknown assailants, confirm the accounts of sexual assault survivors, and exonerate wrongfully accused suspects. There should be laws in every state for budgeting and mandatory testing of all rape kits and a task force to investigate the results and pursue convictions. There's a growing number of advocates pushing for universal testing, and I think this is something we should all get behind and support. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. So that's the story of the untested rape kit backlog, which is still an issue. Um, but I do have some call to actions if you are interested in helping out. Um, you can learn how to become an advocate at endthebacklog.org. And there's actually a lot of information at that website. So if in general you're just interested in learning more, this is definitely something that has a lot of good resources. You can also donate to the Joyful Heart Foundation or you can donate to the Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network, like we said, RAIN for short, uh, to help in their efforts in advocating for policies and regulations that facilitate justice for survivors of sexual violence. And finally, you can learn more about the state's responses to the backlog and ways to get involved through the Rape Kit Action Project. What are your thoughts? I mean, it all sucks. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, it's all good information, and I think it's all information that mm, I think, like, most women are aware of. Mm -hmm. Maybe not to, like, the degree of, like, specifics and, like, statistics and everything, but I think we're all pretty much aware that test kits are not tested like they should be it is yeah. really sad that like in our own city 
you know, they're just kind of blatantly like, nah, mm-hmm. we're not going to test them. We, we feel like we'll investigate them. And then if we feel like there's enough to keep going, then we will. But clearly that's just not, that hasn't worked. Like that's kind yeah. of what's been going on and it's just not working. So it is really unfortunate, but I think it's good that it's being talked about. Yeah. yeah. I, I think we're headed in a direction. It might not be an accelerated direction, but it's something. Um, whereas just a few years ago, this was all, you know, the scandal that was uh, mm-hmm. put away and no one really knew about. And so thankfully it's been discovered. Um, things are kind of being done. I wish it could be faster, but it won't. Um, I don't have an answer to how exactly to fix that, but I think eventually we'll slowly get to a place where justice will be served. Yeah, and like thankfully there's places like the Joyful Heart Foundation, Heart Foundation mm-hmm. yeah, that exist who is doing what they can, mm-hmm. you know, and I like when when it was you said it was Obama, right? Who mm-hmm. created Sucky. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So when when all of that happened, I remember like thinking like how excited I was mm-hmm. because I was like, "Oh my god, finally all of these rape kits are going to be tested." And then I had I heard later on like yeah, they're getting tested, but not much is actually happening with a lot yeah. of them. And so I remember thinking, okay, can we like do something else that says like, you're not going to get the money unless you actually pursue, pursue it or like mm-hmm. do more because clearly it's not enough to be given money to just test it if you're not going to do anything about it. But yeah. I just, not that there's anything like, I'm not blaming Obama for it because at least he was able to get like the ball rolling something started. on like getting, mm-hmm. getting them tested. But I just wish it wasn't, it wasn't this way where it's like you literally have to be told, okay, so now that they're tested, like the like next hand holding through do, this. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Like I wish it was just something that people felt like an inherent desire to want to get rapists off the street. And yeah. it's weird to me that that's just not the case, especially when we know that like things escalate, right? Like, like the serial so killer. Mm-hmm. A lot of things start off with small crimes like mm-hmm. a rape and then they – the rape just i think this was the case with um golden state killer where like oh yes the rape just wasn't like so he was raping people because that's what he like was kind of getting off on but then the rape itself just kind of lost its like magic i guess you could say and, and so it got then worse. It, it moved on to something more violent and then he started killing and then most of his acts were he was killing mm-hmm. women and, and couples and stuff. So mm-hmm. to me, it's like you in law enforcement should know that like it could start and maybe not all of them. No one's saying that all of them, but like, you know, that there is a clear kind of like line between escalating acts of violence. Yeah. So wouldn't you want to keep your community community safe and like start off with rapists? Yeah. Because there's DNA and we're in yeah. 2020 and like that, you know, like, we have things like CODIS. Uh-huh. Yeah, know. this isn't yeah. just a he said, she said at all because you have the DNA, you have the evidence. So why is that not enough? Well, I'm sorry to bring another sad. Well, I guess any episode is going to be sad because when dealing with injustices, there's not a happy story. There might be a somewhat happy ending like there's some justice but regardless the whole thing is going to be upsetting and frustrating and sad and so and this is why we're we're doing this to bring more awareness because this shouldn't happen um too much so it's sad but it is important yeah yeah absolutely 
So thank you all for listening. Thank you guys. We appreciate all your support and your listens. Subscribe. I'm surprised people like people are okay with listening <laughs> to us speak. Oh, <laughs> so I am too. <laughs> so it's nice when it happens. Uh, but we appreciate you guys. Follow us on Instagram on Justly Podcast. Um, There's a Facebook page floating around on there. Um, We've managed to throw unjustly, it up. Unjustly Podcast, the Facebook page. Yeah. <laughs> Email us too if you need mm-hmm. to contact us. Unjustlypodcast at gmail.com. Or if you have ideas or stories we'll that take you might all of it. know about that we don't. You know, I think we do try our best to maybe um, shed light on stories that haven't had, mm-hmm. you know, the privilege of being told. Yeah. And I want this to be more of a conversation. I don't want this to be like us just speaking into a microphone and we're just talking about stuff. I want this to be an open conversation between us and the listeners and between you guys. The five of you. Oh, stop. (laughs) Hopefully. When we first started this, I was like, okay, we got at least like 10 listeners because there's me, you, and then our Our husbands. And then then our parents. (laughs) No, but it's it's gone beyond that. And we're really thankful. So um, let's let's keep this conversation going. Let's bring awareness to these um, issues that are important. Um, So please reach out to us and talk to us. We want to talk to all you guys. Mm -hmm. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Peace out.